Into the Mothlight, a podcast dedicated to experimental film, artists' moving image, installation art, film programming, and festivals. This time, an interview with experimental filmmaker and executive director of the filmmakers co op, MM Sarah. MM Sarah is an experimental filmmaker who has produced, directed, and edited more than 14 works. Her own work, as well as her curated programmes, have been screened in museums, galleries and cinemas across America and Europe. M.M. Sarah was invited to join the Filmmakers Co-op's Board of Directors in 1990 and became the Executive Director in 1991. A graduate of NYU Cinema Studies MA, she says her mission is to create personal vision experimental films, to create to promote, to preserve and digitalise as many filmmakers as possible within FMC's collection. In our interview, we do discuss her work and approach to filmmaking. But to explore how the Filmmakers Co-op was established, I'm going to read some text from filmmaker and founder Jonas Mikas. Into the Mothlight The year was 1960. New York was buzzing with dreams of a new cinema, a cinema that would reflect the sensibilities of 1960. Inspired by the New York School of Cinema, a term used at the Venice Film Festival to introduce the work of Maurice Engel, Sidney Myers and Lionel Rogerson, the French Nouvelle Vague burst upon the scenes of the world. In the United States, the avant-garde cinema of Kenneth Anger, Gregory Markopoulos, Stan Brakhage, Maya Deren and Ron Rice was making its own waves. So was John Cassavetes' Shadows, Robert Frank and Alfred Leslie's Pull My Daisy, Shirley Clark's The Connection, Guns of the Trees, the film I made with Adolphus Makis, and Bert Stern's Jazz on a Summer's Day and Cry of Jazz. On September 28, 1960, some 23 independent filmmakers, including myself, met in New York and decided to create a self-help organisation, which became known as the New American Cinema Group. The group held monthly informal meetings and discussed dreams and problems of independently working filmmakers. Several small committees were created in order to explore the financing, promotion and distribution of our films. My own assignment, besides that of serving as a president of the board, was to investigate new methods of distribution. After looking into the existing film distribution organisations and seeing how few of them were interested in our work, I came to the conclusion that the only thing to do was to create our own cooperative film distribution centre run by ourselves. When Cinema 16, at the time the most advanced avant-garde independent film distribution organisation, rejected Stan Brakhage's film Anticipation of the Night, an eye-opener and the beginning of a totally new subjective cinema, this was the signal that something had to be done. On January 7th, 1962, I invited some 20 avant-garde independent filmmakers to my Manhattan loft to discuss the creation of our own distribution centre. 
Stan Vanderbeek, Ron Rice, Rudy Burkert, Jack Smith, Lloyd Williams, Robert Breer, David Brooks, Ken Jacobs, Gregory Markopoulos, Doc Humes and Robert Downey, to mention a few, were amongst those present. Announcements were sent across the United States and abroad. My loft became the co-op's temporary home. I slept under my editing table. The rest of the place was taken over by filmmakers who were almost always there, screening their films to each other and friends. It was a very exciting period. Everyone was there, from Salvador Dali to Allen Ginsberg to Andy Warhol to Jack Smith to Barbara Rubin. Everybody. Of course, people had been making and showing experimental film for decades before the formation of the co-op in 1962. And this is where M.M. Sarah picks up. I would say that the landscape in New York was before the 60s. uh, That I would say Amos Vogel had Cinema 16 and showed Maya Deren films. He started the New York Film Festival, but it wasn't just experimental cinema. It was everything. Uh, WR Mysteries of the Organism. Amos Vogel embraced everything. Maya Darren was actually talking about her film should be seen, should bring her projector to a theater and rent the theater and show her films. So uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, Maya Darren wrote and talked about vertical editing, film as poetry, and put panels together with uh, Willard Moss and Dylan Thomas, although it, it was uh, when you listen to these panels. So it's educating an audience too. Yeah, I, I I completely agree. And and do you think at that time in, in the in the early sixties when the the organisation was growing in momentum? Because again, I think it was in the piece that Jonas Mikus wrote about the formation, saying that um, filmmakers would meet and show each other work. Yes. Um, and obviously that that kind of peer approach to to developing your ideas makes stronger work ultimately. So do you think the individually grew as artists at the same time as growing as a collective perhaps? Yes, and uh, in the 50s, Ken Jacobs had a loft space and he also invited people like Mike and George were thrown out of the photo club when they <laughs> showed their eight millimeter gay drag films, but uh, Ken would let them show their films in his loft. Could you give me a drink, please? Shirley Clark, Portrait of Jason, roll one, sound one. Okay, Jason, go. My name is Jason Holliday. My name is Jason Holliday. You joined in 1991 and you were already an established filmmaker by that point. Um, you must have been aware of, of the legacy of the organisation and what, what you were perhaps sort of stepping into and what challenges might lay ahead for an organisation such as yours. I was working in Los Angeles and making a studying film with Shirley Clark. And Shirley, do you know who Shirley Clark is? Amazing filmmaker. She did Portrait of Jason. She taught at UCLA and I was working on UCLA campus. When I heard she was there, I went to her 
And I said, the class was totally sold out. There wasn't a, a seat, but I begged her after class. I said, Shirley, I'm, I need to learn from you. I need to tell stories. Let me sit in on your class. And she did. And she let me use the production equipment for free. That'll never happen now. As long as I went when, like at eight on a Sunday morning when none of the students were there because they were out partying the night before. But I made one minute films that I'm still screening and Jonas Meek is preserved at Anthology, those films. And now they're in distribution of the co-op and Redwar in Paris. So Shirley Clark, that's what you talked about. Filmmakers co-op, New York City. She was very political. She was uh, generous. Uh, she talked about making films. And she said, if you can make a one minute film, you can make a feature. Because what do you want to say? If you can get the essence of what your ideas are down to a minute, then you can make a feature film. And I'll never forget studying with her, but because she mentioned the co-op and mentioned Jonas Mikas, when I moved to New York, I went to Anthology Film Archive. It wasn't open, but I met Mikas. And I also studied at New York University. I went to study in the Cinema Studies program with, and so I wanted to not only make films, but I wanted to be articulate. I wanted to be articulate and be able to communicate in words as well as images and have the opportunity to give other people the opportunity to show their work. What was it about Shirley Clark as a, as a teacher and a filmmaker? She obviously had a, a, a huge influence and, and does that in a way kind of reflect in the way that you teach film now perhaps? It affected me in every way. Like she was vegetarian. She had a garden on the roof of the Chelsea Hotel. And Shirley would talk, show us pictures of her garden on the rooftop of the Chelsea Hotel, which she didn't have in L.A. She wasn't crazy about L.A., but she liked film community. She talked about Andy Warhol and working with Warhol. I love Portrait of Jason. And the uh, first time I saw it, I cried. It, it's so moving. It's so touching. It's a lifetime of suffering. But it's also the opportunity to speak about what it is, not just love, 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 but it's also what pains your life, what your str life struggles are. I think it's about time now. I picked up my gay buns and switched out of here. <laughs> I learned a lot, and when I came to New York, I was actually on the board of directors for Saul Levine asked me. Saul said, do you want to be on the board? Because I was doing conspiracy at film festival. And I said, sure, why not? But for me, I had to learn that it's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. As long as I can make, keep making films, and it's also about growing and evolving. And the organization grows. It's a collective, it's a community, and it's not just making films, it's a way of life. For me, it's not about making money. Jonah, I don't know if he ever made money at what he did, but he was a fascinating to be around. 
Charles Cohen wanted, owns the Pacific Design Center and we did a four day screening and Jonas and I and Ken Jacobs went out and it was so much fun hanging around with Jonas and Ken because Jonas was uh, enjoying life. It's about the pleasure and talking about films and also being around people that enjoyed life. James Franco was studying at New York University and his teacher said that I'm bringing my class, my body class to the film co-op and I have a movie, I have this movie star. I had never heard of him. All right. Uh, it was 2008. So he came and then we, I showed films and he came back and spent hours and hours looking at film. He wanted to see all of Michael Snow. He looked at, I was like, amazed but then he wanted to let's do an interview let he let me interview jonas and i said what do you know about jonas and he goes well i'm reading these books and so jonas and i went to the gavin brown gallery and jonas didn't know who james franco was and i thought we had all afternoon whereas we have 15 minutes and we're talking and laughing and Jim Jarvis is standing behind us, and I didn't know it was Jim. But the point is, when we were done after an hour, Jonas said, let's go. He thought that we were talking to Charles Cohen's son, and he didn't know who James Franco was. Anyway, Jonas said, I know a great place to have oysters. Let's go have some oysters and champagne. I'll treat you. And then the best part, I shouldn't say that. It was so much fun. There we are in a restaurant in like late afternoon, eating oysters, plates of oysters, talking about, I invited him to my birthday party. But it was so much fun to sit and talk about not just film, but also life experiences. And when I get all rattled, I call him and complain about something. He goes, oh, just go to your garden. Why don't you do some weeding? or some planting and that'll you'll feel better which is true you do i do blood everywhere on the walls floors ceilings blood everywhere tables chairs counters doorknobs five or more guys a day to feed Thanks. my habit showers our shoes it was blood everywhere steven's tv bonnie's dog trying, trying to get a hit of the windows too the apartment was a living crime scene my name's mary magdalene i'm interested in gender and sexuality almost all my films deal with the idea of how our culture, our society represents gender. So my films are infused with the idea also of who's speaking, the gender and sexuality. And I showed a film called Bitch Beauty in Cuba. And it was about a friend of mine who had been a street junkie whore and had survived and had a band called Transgender Jesus. It's a very intense film because her friend didn't survive. Uh, but when I went to Cuba and I was presenting, someone said to me, well, where are you in that film? How are you represented by that film? And I said, every frame of that film is me. 
because what I make, it's like uh, Rambeau said, I am other. I'm going to make it. It's got to be a representation of my thoughts and ideas and the ethics of creativity and philosophy of making films. Bitch beauty. Um, it is a, it, at times a difficult film to watch. And I, I was interested in, in, in some of the things that you'd said about your work being seen as pornographic and um, your your counter to that was was a phrase that you call art core. Art core is explicit in the cinematic body. It explores abject body in all its parts. And I guess that goes, that goes back to the original formation of, of, of the, the, the group in the 60s when censorship was a problem. Um, is it still a problem for you now when things are seen as pornographic? It still is a problem. Actually, it's a problem now. It's a new problem. Uh, uh, I'm laughing because um, I taught a class called ArtCore at the New School for, for Social Research, which became the School of Public Engagement because you couldn't say social research because that's Marxist. And of course, the school was found by a radical Marxist. But um, now they won't let me teach art core because I might offend the students. And uh, I did a film called Mary Magdalene in 2017 that I got in. And New York Foundation for the Arts did an exhibition. And they invited artists to show work. And they had 14 people. Was it 14? I think so. And they projected it for a month in this gallery space. And uh, my film was called Mary Magdalene has a toplet, one breast in it, one bare breast in it. So they selected it. And then I heard right the uh, when I put it up on the wall and they were about to screen it, they said, well, you have to blur the breast. And I said, what? You select it. You curated it. Now you want me to blur the nipple? And they said, well, we have children coming through here. And I said, but the breast for children is nurturing. Mother's milk, right? Where does the mother's milk come from? A rubber nipple? They said, well, if anyone is offended, then we're going to have to take this down. And that's 2017. We're in the 21st century. And all these fights that Jonas talks about, 1961 and 60, there it is again. And uh, so I said, I'm not blaring it. If they, you have to take it down then. But they didn't have to take it down because no one even noticed that three seconds. But I used the one. Uh, it's a filmmaker I'm filming who's playing in a raw, empty space. And it's cavernous and it used to be a morgue. So it's all these memories and centuries of what it is to be a woman. She's a gorgeous woman. She can be a vampire, but she, in the one shot that has the bear, she's wearing a corset and nothing else. And uh, I was using her camera to film her Bolex and I gave it to her and she said, well, here, let me crank it. And she handed it back and I shot her 
and that shot ended up in the film. How to change culture is picking up the camera yourself and making the film, not depending on Hollywood or anyone else to make your films. You have to make the film yourself, the message you want to say. That's how I see it. You have to pick up the camera, the cameras, the tool. Uh, I have a lot of students who will use found footage or they'll go on the internet and they'll let download this, that, and the other. But to me, I want to use the camera so that I can frame the world and reduce and select and define. It's a matter of selection and reduction and defining what I want to show. Uh, including into the moth light into the moth light podcast another film of yours and it's worth saying now that you've you're, you're quite generous in the fact that a lot of your work is available on your website, so thank you very much for that. I, I, I watched Enduring Ornament from, from 2015, which you, I guess you could argue is from uh, is a found footage film, um, but there, there, was a, there was a lot of beauty and, and strength within that film. So this was a, a 60 millimeter film strip that you found outside an adult bookstore in New York and and then you kind of made it your own. So can you can you tell me a little bit about the background and the process to that film? Because it is a beautiful thing to look at. So I collect films. I collect film footage, and I had a box of films from the. It, it's they're actually from the forties, nineteen forty six, nineteen fifty, uh, when they were still making porn on 16 millimeter and they're from peep shows which were in the red light district where a man would go in and put a quarter in and watch a woman undressed or do a strip tease and uh, they would have little stories like how to uh, seduce your man and like little simple fairy tale narratives so I uh to me, they're archival. To me, they're documents. And I did not want to cut them up and uh, use the original stock. So I met at a conference in Cold Springs, Thai Experimental Film Festival. They had film labs. And I met Josh Lewis, who's a filmmaker. I love his work. And he owns Negative Land. He hand processes film. So, and he has a contact printer and can make negative. So I said, would you be interested in collaborating with me? I have all these films. And so we spent an entire day looking at films and we selected five. He didn't want hardcore film. We selected five peeps. I collect films and film stock. He collects film equipment where labs were closing. He's hauling, he's renting a car and bringing this huge contact printer back to New York and installing it for artists to use to make their contact prints. So that's how that film was made using a lot of 19th century photographic techniques. 
uh, like morgansage, bleach etching, which can ruin your lungs. But the uh, but uh, the interesting thing is the emulsion is organic, and you can with a thin brush paint off the emulsion. Josh. Uh, had this dark room. He built this lab, so we worked together in the lab. But it was too beautiful, silent. The thing with the seduction of the beauty of the imagery, I thought that we needed sound that also spoke, and I think sounds important in my films. I don't know if I ever made a silent film because sound has an emotional heartbeat, and so we can. Constructed a soundtrack using Baroness Elsa von Freitag, Lauren Hoven's poetry, which I read, and he uh, he and I collaborated and on the sound which poems we were going to use. That is found footage, but it's also because it's like a cinematic body. It's deconstructing that body and exposing it and layering it. And speaking and creating a discourse around it. The thing with Enduring Ornament, it has the voice of Elsa von Freitag, Lauren Hovind's voice, ridiculing the patriarchal system, ridiculing God. That added the edge to the beauty of the imagery. I don't know if you'd say it's ridiculing God, but God, it says God spoke to my farting heart. And those words, and she said it in the 40s, and Elsa von Freitag Lornhoven starved to death in Paris in the 40. So it, it, she's the first to wear a man suit in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1917 and as a performance. And she was arrested for impersonating a man. She went to jail. And now, now decades later, now you have uh, centuries later, all right, centuries later. And how I found out about her MIT, as Carolee Schneeman told me, and she had her book from MIT Press. And thank God, the goddess and the gods that MIT Press has her Baroness Elsa von Freitag Lornhoven's collection, finally for the first time after over 100 years, publishing her poetry and her writings. It's not only making the film, but making her visible as well. My camera, video, and before my motion picture camera, uh, bonnet, uh, is, um, is my tool, my instrument, that has become part extension of myself, of my hand, my fingers, my eyes. It's my extension, my extension. Enter the moth light. When I collaborated with the Museum of Modern Art, the film co-op, I wanted to celebrate its 50th anniversary, and they selected films to preserve. One is Charles Henry Ford's Pound Posters, which they have on display at MoMA right now, which has Edie Sedgwick and 
Charles Henry Ford, I think, influenced Warhol because he did silk screens of Ford, a popular culture. And Warhol was at his opening. So, and then he did something called Johnny Minotaur, which is about the myth of the Minotaur and has new male nudity in it. And he went to Capri and you have to see it, but it's hard to see. But Allen Ginsberg's reading from Charles Henry Ford's diaries. It's filmed in Crete and has the myth reenacted of the Minotaur. I thought, that's great. Mama preserved it. Their logo's on it. Now they're going to show it. And then they call and say, no, we're not going to show it. No, nah, you have it. Like, there's a penis on every frame of this film. And what century are we in? We're in the 21st century. But we're having, so I called Jonas and I was like upset. I thought, geez, they selected the film. I, and Jonas said, oh, porn, porn. It's poetry. It's poetry. It, porn is in the eye of the beholder. So I, I couldn't get Mama to show it. They wouldn't show it. They still won't show it. As a matter of fact, they won't put their logo on it. Uh, maybe in the next century, who knows? But I went, I found Denver Film Society said, all right, we'll show it in our porn series. So I said, Jonas, I'm going to Denver, you know, and I'm complaining. He goes, oh, here, quote me. He faxed over a 10-page interview he did with Charles Henry Ford. He said, when you go in front of the audience, quote me, quote my article. And so I did. So it was like having, all right, I sanction this, but I also have his support and his ideas about confronting censorship. One last question for you. Um, so we've talked a lot about the history of, of avant-garde film. We've talked a lot about your work and curation. I know that you do a, an annual New Year New Work program to, to showcase work from new members. So how important is it for you now to look forward as well as, as, as looking back to, to the, the historical significance of FMC? We are moving forward. I mean, we're going to be celebrating 60 years. We're working on doing a podcast. We're collaborating with Revoir in Paris. We're uh, generating Vimeo on demands. We're doing programming. It's important to bring in like people worldwide. I went to Uruguay in 2016, and the Filmmakers Co-op has a selection of films from Uruguay. Uh, 23 experimental filmmakers from South America, from a Marxist country. <laughs> and I showed my films and uh, talked about art core and my films are intense. And so, and I brought an answer to your question about bringing in more collectives, cooperatives. I brought them back to the United States and showed them. And I'm hoping uh, Rachel and I will be able to show the them again as a collective and bring and have them zoom in and talk. I'm into collectives too. Collab of Colleen Fitzgibbons. Collab was a group uh, that made films together in the '80s when New York was a. So we have a collection of like John Ahern, Charlie Ahern. Uh, Walter Robinson, Tom, uh, Colleen Fitzgibbons, and Peter Fenn's amazing collection of films 
from a different time. And we have Naked Eye Cinema, which is queer films that were preserved by Jack Waters and Peter Kramer. So it's not only individual filmmakers, it's collectives and cooperatives. And maybe you could join with your collective. To end this episode, I'm going to read more from the text from Jonas Mikis and the final paragraph of the first statement of the New American Cinema Group as I believe it is as relevant and important now as it was in 1962. In joining together, we want to make it clear that there is one basic difference between our group and organisations such as United Artists. We are not joining together to make money. We are joining together to make films. We are joining together to build the new American cinema, And we are going to do it together with the rest of America, together with the rest of our generation. Common beliefs, common knowledge, common anger and impatience binds us together. And it also binds us together with the new cinema movements of the rest of the world. Our colleagues in France, Italy, Russia, Poland or England can depend on our determination. As they, we have had enough of the big lie in life and the arts. As they, we are not only for the new cinema, we are also for the new man. As they, we are for art, but not at the expense of life. We don't want false, polished, slick films. We prefer them rough, unpolished, but alive. We don't want rosy films. We want them the colour of blood. So, go and make a film. Until next time, goodbye. into the mothman.